0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: The Hamilton Police Services uh, had their meeting uh, yesterday, or Friday rather, uh, and late last week we talked with uh, the Chair, Counselor Lloyd Ferguson, about a couple of different things. One of them uh, was about the uh, statistics that came out that said the use of carding and street checks has decreased dramatically to almost zero. Uh, I think there were six or something like that last year, uh, as opposed to uh, 4,800 of them back in 2012. And uh, Councillor Ferguson and many others in the community are saying, well, if we're not doing those anymore, are we less safe as a result of this? Well, it did come up at the Police Services Board meeting. Uh, The other issue that came up was uh, filling the position of chief and uh, some of the discussion about exactly how that would work in some of the duties. So uh, to get some clarity on that, we want to bring uh, Councillor Ferguson back onto the program. Uh, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, of course, from Lancaster, and also the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. Lloyd, thank you for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Glad
2: to be on, Bill. Thank let's, you.
1: Let's, let's talk about the staffing issue, first of all, because uh, uh, with, uh, of course, uh, Ken Weatherill, the deputy chief, leaving and going up to Barry, uh, retiring from the Hamilton force and going up to Barry to uh, take the same position up there, you had a gap there. Now, you had talked some months ago about the possibility of making that an administrative position as opposed to a police position. Um, how did you guys... Come, now, you, you've come up with some solution. I guess you don't have names for this yet, but what have you decided to do? Okay... Um- First of all, uh, there was a
2: subcommittee uh, put together by the board of three members of the board, of which I was one, so was uh, Madeline Levy, the vice chair, and and so was uh, Don. And so um, we've met about five times and we interviewed uh, people from correctional services, but whether or not we could do this. uh, We interviewed the the retired uh, chief administrative officer from Peel, because they actually have one. We interviewed uh, our legal counsel, but what we can and can't do under the police services act And, of course, we have to uh, make sure the chief will buy into this. So we had a couple meetings with Eric Gert to go over what our plan was. And our plan is to, um, you know, somehow get our arms around this whole administrative side. Uh, You know, uh, should a a sworn officer who spends his entire career uh, focusing on public safety, as they should, is he's seasoned enough to have, for example, the financial people report to him because they don't read balance sheets and income statements and and review auditor statements and prepare budgets uh, while they're on the street. And so should those type of tasks be done with uh, a chief administrative officer and, and other tasks like uh, HR, IT, and running the many facilities that we have? Should that not be an administrator rather than a sworn officer? So after a lot of discussion, we took a recommendation of the board on Friday, which was uh, unanimously supported, And we're going to go ahead and recruit now a second deputy. We're going to keep that position. Um, a few reasons. Number one, the workload of running the whole sworn operation would be just too high for one person, the the deputy chief, if he had one. Second of all, when people get up over 30 years of experience in policing, uh, which is the case when you go to get the chiefs and deputy chiefs, they get a significant number of holidays. And we got to make sure we got a strong enough command to make sure that uh, things are fine well. Uh, Either the chief or one of the deputies are off uh, on vacation or leave or often professional development. And thirdly, uh, we like to promote from within. It's probably appropriate to have two people to choose from within rather than just one. I think it it, uh, generates a little more competition and gives us a little more selection. So uh, we've decided to go ahead and fill the deputy position. We're also going to be recruiting a chief administrative officer. Now, both these positions are hired by the board. So uh, we will be doing the interviews. We've, uh, in a resolution, approved the rehiring of a recruitment firm, same one we used for Eric's position and Dan Casella's position, uh, to start the recruitment process and post it. Uh, We're going to go both internally and externally for the deputy this time, and the same with the uh, chief administrative officer. Uh, We'll be uh, starting that process very shortly and probably be interviewing for both those positions come um, August, September. Uh, there will be no impact to the budget because we will be eliminating another senior position within the service. I can't t- talk about that now because it involves identifiable individuals. They need to know first. And, uh, uh, but there's general support amongst association generals and, and very much supported by the chief to go this route. So all three individuals, the dep- both deputies and the chief administrative officer, will report to the chief of police. as uh, it's, it's a new structure. And and something that puts a focus in and and generally, anybody who's a civilian employee will now report to the chief administrative officer. And uh, he'll also make sure that uh, they're being protected and and, uh, their voices are heard right up to the board uh, through his position within the organization.
1: All right. Let me talk about that structure, that uh, that staffing structure, for just a second. Uh, you seem to be indicating here that, that, that positions are going to be eliminated. Does that suggest there's going to be layoffs within the service?
2: No, it'll be through attrition. Um, we have a number of superintendent positions, for example, where people are retiring, and we just won't fill with one of them and take the position that's uh, or the person that's in the position that's being eliminated and shift that person across. So there'll be no layoffs.
1: Are these civilian positions or policing positions? which one's the uh the ones that will be uh, eliminated by attrition oh there' there's foreign positions okay so so in other words uh and th- those salaries will now all of a sudden be moved over and they'll be either for the well i guess for the the administrative position because that's basically the new one that's being created here correct okay uh why th- why the the need to do this in the first place was the uh, Uh, Maybe you could go over just for a couple of seconds here, because we're trying to get some understanding here as to exactly uh, how the duties are divided between the two deputies here. Uh, I understand size of the city is certainly a factor in situations like this. But my impression, uh, Lloyd, was that uh, there was a distinct uh, set of duties for one deputy and for the other right now. Is that going to remain the same?
2: Yeah. yeah, You know, uh, part of our resolution says that, uh, no, we come up with a structure of how the reporting features will be, but of course, the chief, it's ultimately the chief's decision because uh, we only recruit the people that report directly to him. And so we've uh, reviewed with him our plan of how the restructuring will take place, but of course he needs to, um, uh, and, and of course he had some suggestions of where some further changes should be made. So in the resolution, it, it says the chief be requested to report back to uh, the deputy chief process subcommittee, um, on an interim organization chart by September the 8th, 2017. So he's got the summer now to review the structure of both the deputies and who reports to them, and the chief administrative officer. As I just mentioned, the, the selection committee has already proposed one to him, but he's going to come back with his uh, his review of this and his suggestions also. So that won't happen until the September board meeting.
1: In previous incarnations when you had the two deputies, is is it – uh, safe uh, to assume that the, that one of those deputies was responsible for these administrative things that you've now hived off to a separate position. Yes, and and that that's a pretty big nut for somebody who may not have been trained to have much experience in that line of work to all of a sudden assume that
2: it is. And and, and of course, um, once again, you know, a sworn officer is not as seasoned in the financing side, for example, is what we would like. And and and, second, and we had the opportunity after Ken retired to take a look at this organizational structure. Also, uh, IT is becoming a very big part of policing now, and uh, you know, people have cameras in their homes, as we found out through some recent arrests, and you have a whole IT section that would review those videos and enhance them and turn them over to the investigative people to make sure that, uh, or to to make a quick arrest. And a good example of that was the two uh, carjackings that occurred in the Meadowlands in Ancaster, where someone, uh, you know, criminal laid down the back seat of the car, wait for the owner to return, and uh, then put uh, uh, a sharp-edged object against their throat and told them to go to an ATM. In both those situations, because of cameras that were able to capture this individual, we had a arrest in two days. And, and so uh, the use of information technology is advancing significantly in policing. And uh, we, we want the, the IT section to report through this chief administrative officer who has training on that. Clearly the people that will use it are the investigators, uh, but use getting that support for someone who's got formal training in that area. And we have a great head of our IT right now and um, and, and allows us to advance that along. Facilities, you know, we're building a brand-new $25 million investigative services building. The tender is out for that now. It should close in early July. We'll be in the ground later this summer. And so we have a lot of facilities that we look after, too, plus a lot of police cars out there that have to be maintained and, and replaced. So that will all fall under this new chief administrative officer also.
1: All right, so this is not just going to be a numbers cruncher then. This individual is going to be involved in law enforcement in some capacity as well.
2: As a civilian position, uh, having this, uh, the civilians who provide that support to the sworn officers and making sure we've got the most current
1: technology. All right, let's 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 get into the other issue, because you raised this actually a few months ago, Lloyd, and, and I know you and I talked about this last week when you appeared on the program, uh, about safety. And and you came out with a report last week that uh, basically was a, a great big pile of statistics, and uh, it's your job, obviously, on the police services board to sift through these things and to try to see the the story behind these numbers. And, and one of them uh, comes down to, well, whatever phrase you want to use. Uh, some call them carding, some call them street checks. Uh, having discussions with, and in some cases gathering information, uh, in uh, 2012 uh, there were 4,800 of these so-called street checks uh, with Hamilton Police Services. There were only six that were recorded last year. Uh, your concern at that time was with this huge decrease. Uh, are we less safe right now? What 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 was the conversation like when you had this meeting at the Police Services Board meeting? Well,
2: that's it. Yeah, I think you just nailed it. it our concern is, and, and I've felt this all along, we had a lot of special interest groups come before us, and ultimately the province took this matter into their own hands to change the les- legislation on collection of information. And, and uh, so our street checks have gone steadily down since this started to arise. And, you know, we saw a big drop in 2013 to 2014 from 3,684 to 192. In 2015, there was 43, and 2016, 6. So they're virtually not existent. And, of course, talking to people is a very big part of policing. That's how you learn information. And now I believe they're still talking to them, but they're not recording it. They don't give names and addresses and, and uh, have that on a file in case someone fits that uh, description later on in a future crime. And, and so uh, we were told by our senior command, this is a big part of policing and we should resist it. But now they're not doing it, and it, there's only two reasons this could be happening. Number one, um, the officer must tell the person that he's speaking to that you can walk away if you want to, and so the bad guys aren't going to stick around. They're going to walk away. Um, and and secondly, uh, you know, there, this has caused a lot of publicity and a lot of negative attention towards police, You know, they have the one situation and I can't talk about it, but it involves a city councillor and that's going before adjudication, but it ended up in an officer being, having charges placed against him for doing his job. And so are they just walking away? Are they they driving by now instead of stopping and talking to people who may be suspicious or may be in trouble and need help, where they would typically stop and talk to these people they're driving on by. Uh, You know, when you ask the senior command, are we doing that, of course, they'll say no, because if they're... Admit to a derelict duty, but it, but it's um, uh, it's it's got to be tempting. If I was a police officer, it would be very tempting. So, ju- a justice who um, put this legislation together is I think his name is Bullock or tollock Tolik, and um, he's been now uh, recruited by the province to circle back and and meet with um, uh, not only um, police boards, police command, and um, the special interest groups again. And so this is an opportunity for us to express our concern. Now it's subjective, but you know, do the, do the bad guys feel comfortable wearing carrying guns again? Because they know that if they want, if approached by an officer, they can walk away, unless of course they're under arrest. And um, you know, is that why we had 13 shootings so far this year? Don't know. But I'm going to keep my eye on this because we have a duty to keep Hamilton safe, and and a duty to make sure we're using every tool that's in the toolbox. We got to make sure we haven't pardon the pun, but shot ourselves in the foot with this legislation.
1: Well, let me, let me ask you about your sense on this, because I know that you brought it up, and I know that Senior Command responded to this and and told you, and I'll paraphrase this, that there's no direct correlation between these reduced numbers and, and any lack of safety on the streets. I mean, that, that's basically what they're saying, is there's no, there's no proof, there's no evidence of that, there's no report that, that, that indicates that. But I've talked to people, the front, some of the folks on the front line, who's, uh, I'm not going to mention names here, and I'm sure you have too. And I'm hearing a different story. I'm hearing that uh, officers are saying, you know what, it's a different scenario out there right now. And, uh, and they're not talking about, you know, that things are going wild on the streets, but they say it's more difficult for them to do their jobs as a result. And they've got some concerns about their own safety and the safety of the public.
2: And, yeah, of course, they want to go home to their families, and they don't want to get charges laid against them. So, yeah, you're, And you're right.
1: Nobody's going to say, no, I don't do it anymore because I'm afraid I'm going to get charged. Yeah, they don't. Or they like but the that doesn't mean that's not job. what's
2: happening. Exactly. But that's our job as police board members to question that and challenge that and that's what I tell you as the police board chair I intend to do that when they circle back and ask to meet with us about this new legislation and how it's working I'll simply
1: lay these numbers in front of them and ask them to form their own opinion I because I, there are different ways you can look at this I mean when you look at that high number that I talked about in 2012 there's 4,800 of those so-called street checks uh, some people will look at that number and say, "Well, that just tells you the cops were going way over the top then, and they're becoming way too aggressive." And this new number is is probably the more reasonable number. But I'm hearing another argument from that that's saying, "No, that was necessary back then, and it's probably necessary right now." But nobody wants to have their butt dragged in front of a police services tribunal.
2: Well, let me throw some other statistics on you to show you that you know things are are you know, you, but you can form your own opinion on these numbers in. Uh, tw- During the last 16 years, the average number of use of force cases were 237 per year. This year, we had um, 172 of which 15 involved animals, so 157 incidents of use of force by a police officer. And that's based on 421,117 incidents or public contacts by police. So in 421,000 contacts, there's only 157 uses of force. And and I think uh, these statistics also validate the use of the uh, conductive energy weapons, or as the public knows them as tasers. Yeah. You know, we had we didn't have any a couple of years ago. This is a, a new investment that we made, and and put another tool on the tool belt of the off front line officers. There was 147 incidents of where the um, the taser was pulled, but it's but the interesting part there was only 38 where it was fired a hundred and at the balance which is about a hundred and twenty five were simply they displayed it so they pulled out of the holster they may or may not arc it and i tell you that calms the situation pretty quickly based on these statistics And and so uh... we've also had uh, a significant number of uh... cases where the handguns been pulled uh... the number of times an officer discharged a firearm decreased to eighteen in twenty sixteen the average since 2008 is 41. And, and so the reason for that, I suspect, is they're not having to pull their weapon, which is lethal. They're pulling the taser, arcing it, and shutting the situation
1: down. Uh, a story behind every one of these stats, and we'll have to delve into them, and certainly you will too. Lloyd, thank you so much for the update. I know you got to get into a committee meeting, so I'll let you go, but uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. That's uh, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, of course, uh, Chair of the Police Services Board. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
3: on AM 900
0: CHML.
1: Uh, In light of the uh, terrorist attack, well, that's how it's being described right now anyway. Uh, A man has been killed, eight others injured. That we do know after a vehicle, a white van, apparently drove into a crowd of worshippers who were leaving a mosque uh, near London. Uh, to get the update on the situation, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program David Videset, uh, former Scotland Yard investigator, terrorism expert, uh, turned author, of course. Uh, and we'll talk about that another time. Now let's get into the the nitty gritty about what happened here. David, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Hello, Bill. How are you? Great. I've been following your uh, your comments on Twitter this morning after this incident. Uh, what do we know at at this stage? Uh, there's an awful lot of speculation. What have you been able to ascertain?
0: Uh, Well, I think what's what's happened is, is that a van that was hired in Wales, which is quite a long way from London, um, has ploughed into a group of people. And a a lot of people are saying that they were worshippers at a mosque nearby and they'd they'd been there for evening prayers. Um, And this van deliberately mounted the pavement and and, uh, collected a, a group of them on the pavement, killing one person. And injuring some others, um, but there are also sort of some brief reports suggesting that the they people were outside a cafe, uh, and, and there was a large group of Somalians outside a, a cafe. So it's kind of a, a confused picture at the moment, um, and we we're not really sure um, how deliberate this was. You know, because there are some saying that the man was drunk, uh, but the reason it's being treated as a as a terrorist attack at the moment is because there is a witness who says that um, when they got him out of the van, uh, he was saying, I've done my bit, I want to kill Muslims. Um, so they're, they're looking at it as a terrorist attack at the moment, but I think as the day's going on, um, it could prove something different.
1: There, there's been speculation about uh, even the, the the fatality that uh, has been reported here, David. Uh, initial reports suggested obviously one person is dead and eight others injured. Uh, I've seen some activity on social media on Twitter in the last little while that suggested... That uh, the uh, the individual who perished may actually have been injured previously to the to the uh, c- the truck going up onto the into the patio there area that that actually there were a number of people that were attending to somebody who was laying on the ground at the time. Have you heard anything about that?
0: No, I haven't. Haven't seen that. Absolutely, um, the, the whole situation is quite confusing, and I think um, there's a lot a lot of people jumping to conclusions, um, perhaps unnecessarily. So about what's happened. And I think we see this a lot. You know, there's a clamour for information and for, you know, what, what's happened, who's involved. And quite quickly, people want to start pinning blame and saying, well, yes, it, he's a terrorist or he's racist or he's done this, you know, for a religious purpose. And, and with all these things, you know, you've heard me say it before, with all these things, we do have to try and wait for some reliable information. Um, the police haven't been very forthcoming with that this morning. Um, and I haven't seen any statements from them at uh, present.
1: Are you surprised by that? Usually, they they usually have some sort of a uh, a public statement to be made, at least in the initial parts of the investigation, and and and, and that struck me that, that we have not heard anything official yet.
0: Yes, I think I again, you know, we 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 we've had this is the fourth if we if it's a terror attack, it's the fourth attack that we've had in ninety days here, uh, and yes, they've all been uh, sort of different groups and, and different reasons, but um, but it'd be the fourth attack, and, and so we we. we, we we, you would expect the police to come out and make an initial statement and make an initial assessment to try and get rid of some of the rumours about what's going on. Um, but I guess the, the situation must be so confused that even even the police are finding it difficult to, um, to establish what the facts are. I think the person that um, suggested that um, this man, uh, or terrorist, whatever he is, has said, um, oh, you know, I wanted to kill Muslims, apparently he hasn't even given his real name. Um, so we're, we're not sure about how reliable that piece of information actually is, and really, that's the the whole crutch of it. Really, is is, is is was this intentional? Was he targeting them because they're Muslim, or, or was this some form of accident? And, and was this guy just
1: drunk? I guess what adds to the narrative here that uh, that this was terrorist attack is is the mosque uh, where this was the uh, where this occurred nearby, the, the Finsbury Park Mosque. Uh, is is somewhat of a controversial location historically, isn't it, David? I mean, it was the site of uh, some rather uh, militant activity, I guess, uh, from militant uh, yes. uh, as not too many years ago, and by a, a rather radical iman of that time.
0: Yeah, that's a, indeed. Uh, it doesn't have a great reputation. Um, it, you know, we we had a lot of um, hate preachers there at one one point. Um, that that mosque has been. Searched by uh, counter-terror uh, officers some years ago, but it was one of the few mosques that have actually been searched, and there, was, there were items found in it. Um, it. It does have a bad reputation, but I, that was some years ago, and I think they the, the, um, the trustees have done a lot to try and uh, try and get it a better reputation. But I think um, that in people's minds, it still remains a bad place, and, um, and, and so yeah, we you know we've had. Uh, people, you know, putting pigs' heads on the railings outside that mosh before, um, and, you know, and throwing bacon at it, that sort of thing. Um, so, all, all of the indications are, you know, if you if you if you look at this guy, you know, he's he plowed into a group of people, uh, and then he then he's alleged to have said this. Then it would all, you know, like you say, be the right narrative, point in the right direction for our right wing extremist to do. And, and you know, we kind of wouldn't be surprised to hear that with these circumstances. But um, but uh, you know, we do have to wait for that to happen correct information, um, and uh, it must be very confused for the police not to have come out and said something initially.
1: Well, sure, and, the, and like you say, little bits of information that can feed into different narratives like that, and uh, and, yeah. and even after uh, you know, Hamza al Masiri was arrested, I think that was almost seven years ago now in the United States, and right. he, he's in prison, yeah. but my understanding is is that uh, subsequent uh, organizers and imans at the mosque have, have actually gotten rid of the radical element and tried to clean it up, but notwithstanding, I guess, reputations are pretty hard to change, aren't there.
0: That is the problem, and, and especially when you know when you if you go on if you put you know you punched it into Google, Finsbury Park Mosque um and then just sort, sort through the images. The first, first thing you would see, you'd see the you know Abu Hamza with his hook hand praying in the street with all his worships in the street when he was banned from the mosque, but he still continued to. Preach hate in the street, and and then you know all the bodyguards around him have all subsequently been involved in terror attacks or in terrorist activity in the years since his arrest, and and that's so, you know that's that's kind of the reputation of the place, and that's and again that that kind of points you in the direction of could this be some right wing lunatic who, who decided because we had yesterday in London we had the Al Quds march, um, and there were allegedly. Um, youngsters wearing um, flags, you know, banned terrorist group flags um and, and things like that. And, and again, all of that is being used to support the view that this man has done this deliberately. It's a, it's a bad mosque. It's a, you know, we had we have Muslims wandering around London wearing terrorist flags yesterday, and he's he's gone on attack worshipers, even evening prayers. All of that points you in one direction. But um, by the same token. You know, the mosque has done lows to, um, you know, clear its name and then try to clear things up. Abu Hamdur is in prison. Um, you know, they, they, it might just be a pure coincidence that we had this march in London yesterday. Yes, there was some controversy around it, but I'm sure the police will sort that out and deal with the offenders. Um, and, you know, this man just could be, could be drunk. I mean, there, there were, didn't appear to be a great deal of damage to the vehicle. Uh, when you when you look at the photographs of the vehicle that's been used, um and compare those with, with the with the Ram that we had on Westminster Bridge and London London Bridge. Um, um, kind of it, it, it doesn't it doesn't look anywhere near it damage, it doesn't look like it, it's it's been uh, used in the same sort of way. Um that's my interpretation of it. So I think we've just gotta wait wait and see what comes up and wait and see what the police say later on
1: today. But there are some things that are, are rather interesting and maybe coincidental, and I know that you tweeted about this a few hours ago, uh, uh, David, that, uh, that this is actually uh, very close to the anniversary of a couple of significant occurrences not too long ago, Brexit being one of them, but also, the, of course, the, the murder of, of, of a member of Parliament. Uh, it's, I guess, almost a year ago now, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. We, we, we had an um, MP called Joe Crox, and she was murdered on the 16th of June last year. And um, She was murdered by a man that um, we, they couldn't prove... Uh, why he'd actually done it, Uh, but there was lots of suggestions that he was linked to right-wing groups and um, that Joe Cox was about to release, those a um, a, a report on Muslims being targeted by right-wing groups and uh, that was passed behind it. Um, And and that happened, I say, 6th of June last year and the 23rd of June last year, we had the vote to leave the European Union, the Brexit vote, um, and, and, you know, her murder sort of led up to that, as it were. Um, So, you know, this... Attack this incident that's happened right in the middle of of those two anniversaries, and and again, if you if you want to use that narrative, if the information is correct about um, you know what he said when he when he was dragged out of the van, if he has done this deliberately, again it could point in the direction of some you know perhaps right wing group that are using using the anniversary of these things. Uh, to, to support their cause and, and to say, you know, this is what we do. You know, when you, when you look at others, other, other forms of terrorism, anniversary attacks that are very popular. Um, so, so, again, you know, if we if take the information as being, yes, that's correct and that's right, that could be what we see. But, um, uh, you know, I think as, as the day rolls on, uh, I'm, I'm becoming uh, more and more sceptical about whether this is a terrorist attack or not.
1: When these things happen, David, what's, what's going on? What's the mood of, of not just the people in London, but in the U.K.? I'm sure you've heard the stories. I mean, we, and you're right, you mentioned about the the London Bridge attacks and, and the other incidents that have occurred, obviously, over the last couple of weeks now. Uh, a couple of uh, U.K. expats who have uh, done pretty well on U.S. television over here, James Corden and John Oliver, uh, have both gone on to their shows over the last couple of days and said, please do not characterize... Uh, citizens of the UK is in shock and on you know and on their heels. We are not like that, you know. We are resilient. Yeah. Uh, we'll fight like this. I mean, that uh, they they really got pretty ticked off about some of these characterizations uh, and and uh, and I think with good cause too. How how are people reacting and responding?
0: Well, it's, it's funny, I went. I did some. Uh, I did some work with NBC News quite recently. Yeah. Um, and, um, and and NBC. Um, you know, they, we, we just raised the threat level um, to the highest we've ever had. We had the army on the street and they, they were kind of looking around um, at, you know, what was going on. They said, well, if, if this is in lockdown, you can't go any further than this. And, and, and kind of, um, you know, we are resilient, but we, and we don't really panic and worry you know, absolutely too much. Um, traditionally, certainly in, on, in London and, and Northern Ireland and other parts of the country, we have grown up with terrorism you know of different different causes you know we've had
3: we had the, the, you know, the
0: ira and we regularly bomb different places and and i and i guess you know we we kind of are used to it but no we're not in lockdown um uh, you know it is unfortunately uh, what life is about and it, and, and we, we just kind of get on with it um and you know we we all live together and and, and Sometimes sometimes it's difficult, you know, having lots of different people, different cultures and uh, different ideas and different views all being together. But kind of over time, that becomes your strength as well. Does that make sense?
1: No, I, I sense that. And, and we saw that happen after the first attack on the bridge uh, a couple of months ago now. Uh, whereas we saw those pictures as that was happening here in, over in London. Uh, you know, Whitehall was locked down, obviously around the Parliament buildings, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, 24 hours later, it was business as usual. We talked to our, our global yeah. television uh, guy who was standing right there, Jeff Semple, who was standing right there at, by Westminster and, and said, you know, you'd never know. I mean, there's a police presence, certainly. Uh, and, and, you know, there were some streets that were cordoned off, but uh, everybody else was just backed with it. They, they seemed to almost have the attitude, the authorities who are in charge are doing what they need to do. We're just going to get on with our lives
0: that That's right, and it is very much like that you know we we have we do have an absolute trust in in, uh, in the police and and the government to a point in in, in dealing with these things um i think the repeated attacks like we've we've had over the like last ninety days you know that that does have an impact on it and and I, and we are kind of seeing a bit of polarization around the politics involving it, and I think if it carries on you know we 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 may have some Sort of social problems and perhaps you know some difficult demonstrations in the streets, but i uh, you know generally we we will get on with it and um we, we it wasn't so long ago we we we'd had the heart of our city you know completely destroyed by bombs um you know going going back to, to the nineties um um you know with, with the i r a were doing it and um, we' just you know we just get used to it and get on with it it's not great it's, no one wants to see it. But that's the way we are, um, and we we don't have this attitude of lockdown, and you know you you aren't allowed out, and curfews, and it's just it's, it's just not our here at all. Um, I think it's the best way to be, really.
1: My my first trip to London was uh, back in the mid '80s, just after uh, uh, the U.S. had bombed uh, uh, Gaddafi, and and of course he was bowing revenge on 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 the U.K. and yeah. the Americans and everything else. And I, it just happened about two days later that I flew into Gatwick. And and obviously there was a military presence at the airport, et cetera, with dogs and and armed uh, people there, but the streets of London were essentially the same. I mean, they said be vigilant, you know, be careful, and, and but it's it's as if okay, we know that there's a possibility of this happening, but we're not going to let it ruin our lives. We're not going to cave into the fear, and that seems to be the prevalent attitude with the with the, the UK with the, all of these attacks.
0: Yeah, well, and we don't, and to be honest, we don't have, you know, the, the the legal means to put the army on the streets. Uh, we, we it's very difficult for us to do that. Um, you know, we we rely upon the police, and and they they police by consent here is a word term that we use, um, and, and you know, we, the the public supports. Everything is going on. So, it's, we, unlike other countries, it's not, it's, it's, we don't, we can't mobilise the army and, and just put the army on the street. That, 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 we need acts of parliament to do that. So, I think that's really, really, really bad and much, much, much worse than what they have been over the last few months. Um, and, and really, if you if you look at the amount of terror that we've had here in the UK, you know, even since the turn the turn of the, um, um, of, the of the millennium, it hasn't been that bad at all.
1: The polarization that some people are, are, are talking about here—that, uh, as I say, that both Corden and John Oliver seem to take exception to—I uh, certainly sense it at the political level, David. But I don't sense it from the uh, the, the, the people in the street, the average individual in London.
0: No, I—I I think just it, it, it's certainly moving in that direction. We, we've had a, a very, very serious fire here. Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen that on news. Oh yeah, yeah
1: we we'll uh, covered that uh, extensively. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, we've had a very serious fire here, and and kind of what we're seeing is, um, you know, we just had the general election as well. It's and, and they and they're using those, you know, for their, for their own ends uh, for political purposes, and, uh, and and that's what I mean by the polarization of politics is we're seeing groups actually jumping on board these incidents and, and turning them into politics.
1: Sadly, but uh, life goes on, as it uh, has in past incidents and will on this one, too. David, thank you so much for the time. It's great having you on the program again.
0: Okay, take care, let's, uh
1: Let's talk a little bit about your new book next time you come on. I do appreciate the time today.
0: Yeah. Take I care. To
1: David Weidzett, uh by the way, if you want to Google him, he, of course, is the author of The Theseus Paradox, an incredible uh, book about uh, well terrorism and how the... Uh, The folks at Scotland Yard deal with this, and he's got a brand new one, too. If you just Google him, I'm sure you'll get all the information about that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: report coming up on Global National today that uh, we all need to be watching and paying attention to. uh, Over the years now, I don't know how many stories we've covered about uh, traffic fatalities that have occurred in this community and other communities right across the country uh, and oftentimes the uh, the charge late is is dangerous driving, careless driving, uh, variations on that theme, right? And and there's been a loss of life in many of these situations, but we tend to lose track of a lot of these cases. And and then that that may be page one news or lead story news on a newscast. And then some years later, when when there's finally some resolution to the case, uh, it's a, a, like a, an almost an afterthought, an asterisk to the report. And oftentimes the uh, the penalty, if in, one, in fact one is imposed is, uh, in many people's minds, very insignificant. Well, Global News has undertaken a very extensive investigative report about what happens in these situations, why they happen, and what goes on as the wheels of justice turn on these. So what does happen to a person who hits and kills a cyclist or a pedestrian on our roads? Global News will undertake this with Chief Investigative Correspondent uh, with Global National, Carolyn Jarvis, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this report. Carolyn, thank you so much. It's great to have you with us again.
3: Thanks for having me, Bill.
1: This, uh, as I say, this is a story that resonates with just about everybody. I mean, if it hasn't touched somebody, a family, a friend, somebody like that, it's certainly a story that that we have heard about and and, and are oftentimes horrified about the results and maybe even more horrified about uh, how this this unwinds from a legal standpoint.
3: Yeah, well, take a look at the numbers. So last year in Ontario, 34,000 people were charged with careless driving, 34,000. I'll let you take a guess for a second. How many of those charges resulted in convictions?
1: (laughs) Uh, Not very many.
3: 5%. Are you kidding? 5%. Percent. So in most cases, the charges are dropped, or more commonly, um, the person who is responsible or alleged to be responsible pleads down to a lower charge. So like making an unsafe left-hand turn is an example that we found in our research. And so then the fines for making an unsafe left-hand turn could be as little as a couple hundred bucks, $500. And forevermore, the courts will only recognize that what went wrong in that instance where somebody lost their life, was a wrong left-hand turn. And for the families, it just stings.
1: But if I, here's the thing I find frustrating about this. I could be charged with making an illegal turn like that uh, with no consequences to loss of life or or any damage. An officer may have just seen me do that and charge me, and I'm gonna get the same fine as somebody who actually Well,
3: probably killed somebody. Exactly. We found examples where the charges leveled against the person responsible were $85. $85 where somebody lost their life. That is the exact same fine as running a stop sign. And in the eyes of the courts, when you look back historically, nowhere will it document that someone died. Someone died. Or even if somebody was seriously injured. And that's one of the fundamental arguments of victims' families here. They say, could you just as a starting point, recognize that someone lost their life in this incident. Can we not can we not agree on that? Even if the charge has careless driving causing death, careless driving causing serious injury, could somebody at least recognize that our loved one died here? That would be a starting point.
1: Well, one of the things that I know you're doing in the report, and this took a long time to put together, as uh, is, is you're putting faces and names to this, this is not just a, a statistical rehash of what's gone on uh, that oftentimes we look at in the abstract. Uh, the, these are people's lives you're talking about.
3: Oh, absolutely. And the consequences for those responsible, they say, don't go far enough. Uh, let me be clear for a second. We have a charge already in the books in the Highway Traffic Act in Ontario that has very serious penalties attached to it. Careless driving has with it the potential for six months in jail. Two thousand dollars in penalty, um, license suspension is a possibility. But what we see in practice, when we analyze these cases on the whole, is that those penalties to the extreme never happen. You never see somebody charged, oh, except with the rarest exceptions, with two thousand dollars or going to jail. On the odd case, you do, but. Almost never. Often people are getting off with a few hundred dollars in fines. So why is the charge itself not working? And do we need a separate provision when it comes to pedestrians and cyclists who are seriously injured and killed? Bill, I should state here, nobody's saying that we want to throw everybody in jail. That's not the Canadian way. That's not how our justice system typically operates. But what families of victims are saying is they want something meaningful. And so they've looked south of the border where nine U.S. states have introduced what are called vulnerable road user laws. And those laws have what they consider more meaningful penalties. So driver training courses, taking a traffic safety course, doing community service around roadways, picking up trash on the side of a road, something that contributes back to highways and road safety, something that recognizes that Something wrong happened on the road. And heck, showing up in court, because right now, that doesn't always have to happen. You can take somebody's life and not even have to show up to face the family.
1: Yep, a lawyer will represent you. And and I know that as as you did the research for this, uh, Carolyn, as you were putting these reports together, it's going to be a two-part series, that uh, this had to be mind-boggling. And and I would imagine very disturbing to actually see some some of these stories and, and the end result of some of these stories.
3: Oh, absolutely. And you, know, and you had to take the flip side to it too, Bill, because I interviewed a lot of advocates and I said, come on. I mean, for the people who are behind the wheel, I have to be empathetic for a moment. It's got to be sheer horror for them also. I mean, how can they go on with their lives with any sense of normalcy when, when they know that they're responsible for taking somebody's life? Isn't that punishment enough? You don't want to throw these people in jail. Aren't they suffering themselves already? And some of these lawyers said to me, you know what? Actually, you'd be surprised. We go into court and we find out that there are drivers who feel no sense of culpa who do not feel like they did anything wrong here. And we want to send a message to these people that, that, in fact, there is a problem and that you do have to pay a penalty when you take somebody's life and it has to be recognized by the courts accordingly.
1: All you need to do is drive around the streets of Toronto, Hamilton, or any other city here in this province or right across this country, as, as you discovered in this report, and you see that attitude with motorists oftentimes uh, where they'll get ticked off at somebody. Well, look at that stupid idiot. There. Well, they're, What they're doing is legal. Uh, You know, and pedestrians, cyclists, whatever the case might be, yet they seem to say, well, it's them that are in the wrong, not me. And and, uh, you you wonder about just how frivolously they look at at, at human life in situations like that. Oftentimes, uh, there are too many motorists. One is one too many, I guess, really, when you look at the standpoint that look at motorists and pedestrians as impediments to this person getting from where they want, uh, you know, point A to point B. Well,
3: it's because we live in a car culture. Yeah. The car is almost given a free pass. By default, the driver seems to have precedence on our roadways. And maybe that's not the way it should be. At one, You know, people think about these laws and they think, "Ah, oh, gosh, these are niche laws for cyclists. I'm not a cyclist. Most of us are car commuters, and that's the way the law should be designed to operate around. But frankly, we're all pedestrians. First and foremost, if you get out of your car to go from point A to point B or get into your car and walk one street block, you're a pedestrian and these laws will affect you and they affect people in our very newsrooms. We've got people that we work among here who've had loved ones affected by this. That wasn't the genesis of this story. But through our process of research, we realized this. There are very few people when you remove yourself a couple degrees who are untouched by these these laws and, and these unfortunate acts.
1: This is one of the things I found as I watched some of the other stuff that uh, that you've done with Global and some of the investigative reports, and obviously you're hearing about that even within your own work environment in the newsroom there, is is they'll hear about the story that you're doing and you say, you know what, Carolyn, that happened to a cousin of mine, or that happened to somebody mm-hmm. that I know. Uh, it does have an impact, and it, it I guess it just reinforces that this has happened and is happening a lot more than we realize.
3: It does, you know, and, and the statistics aren't jumping significantly, but w- what people are saying is, is, why do we have to have a massive spike in numbers or a decrease in numbers to get action? Like, this just seems like logical uh, a logical next step to most people in terms of protecting the pedestrians and cyclists, sending a message of deterrence, and protecting the families who are going through an awful grieving time after the loss of their loved ones. We look south of the border where they have those vulnerable road user laws and they can be fined up to $12,000 by contrast to the $85, $100, $200. I mean, it's a slap in the face when you lose your loved ones and the driver is fined $200. Fundamentally, as journalists, when we pose the question, does this make sense? And the answer is no, we dig deeper, and that's what we've done here.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the impact that it has on families and, and those that are going through something like this. So you say there's the initial shock and, and horror, and eventually I would imagine outrage about losing a loved one in in an incident like this. And there are so many that you, you've talked about right across the country. Then there's the... Oh, the, I guess the ultimate, which is the culmination of whatever court case would take place in follow-up. Oftentimes it's months, uh, sometimes years later, when they finally come to some resolution. And how many pictures have we seen now of, of shocked families that are saying, that's it? That's all? It you know, stings, yeah. What a, is there any value to the life that was lost?
3: Well, and you know, politicians will give you the answer, which I've heard many times through the course of this investigation, which is there's no dollar figure you can attach to the loss of a loved one that will make this feel right. And I agree with that. That's fine. But 500 bucks? I mean, if we're arbitrarily going to choose a number, is $500 the right number? Is $85 the right number? Because by virtue of this process, we have decided there is a dollar figure, and the courts are deciding what the value of the life is by attaching a number to the loss of life, and it doesn't seem to be enough. 12 grand in the United States? Well, That sends a stronger message than $85, I would argue. Again, it's not about clogging our courts. It's about saying that this was something significant that happened. And here's what's interesting, Bill, that most people won't know unless they're political nerds like you or I. And that is that there was a private member's bill introduced in the legislature last year by Ella McMahon, who very tragically lost her husband to a very similar accident. Yeah,
1: a cyclist, yeah.
3: And she wanted, uh, her crusade was to have a law like this introduced. She wanted it to be called Careless Driving Causing Death that you could actually put in the title causing death. Someone died here. We need to recognize that. The House is prorogued, so this died on the order paper. There's been a petition by uh, another politician to have this bill reintroduced. It hasn't happened yet. The government hasn't introduced this bill. And when Erica Stark died, there was uh, more momentum behind this discussion to reintroduce a bill that had more teeth behind it, more consequences. And yet it hasn't happened. So one of the things we did in our investigation, which we always do, is we sought accountability. We sat down with the Minister of Transportation, Stephen Del Duca, to ask him, What's going on? Why do we have to have this conversation for a year and a half and only be given substantive messages when someone else dies, when it's a case of prominence that's provoking public discussion? Why can't we talk about it now so that there aren't more cases to talk about in the future without meaningful consequences?
1: Well, governments talk the talk when it comes to getting tough, and and, and we've had federal and provincial governments that have done that in the past, but this seems to be... For lack of a better expression, a no-brainer. I mean, who's going to be against a law like this? I, I don't get why the government's not moving more proactively here.
3: Neither do the families. In fact, the city of Toronto, in a rare move, passed a motion encouraging the legislature to put forth a bill that would protect vulnerable road users. So the city of Toronto has signaled it's behind this sort of a bill. Why it hasn't happened? I don't know. I mean, we sat down with Stephen Del Duca just earlier uh, this past week, rather last week, and, uh, you know, he was very uh, forthcoming in saying that he was looking into this and that um, he thought that this was a deserving issue of his attention. But we've been hearing, quote, I'm looking into this for quite some time. At what point does I'm looking into this mean I'm doing something?
1: Well, Eleanor, I've, I've known Eleanor for quite some time. As a matter of fact, I knew her as an advocate long before she got into a, a elected office, of course. because You know, when her husband was tragically killed some years ago d- during a, a, a bike race uh, fundraiser, I thought i recall as it was, uh, that, that she became very vocal about that. And, of course, now subsequent to that, of course, she's been elected to office. She's now a cabinet minister in the Wynn government right now. You'd like to think that that, that people around that cabinet table would listen to her story. I'm sure they're all aware of her story and you'd like to think that look at this is again this is not just a hypothetical this is what can actually happen and what has happened and we need to do something about it
3: if they're not listening to their own colleague somebody who works in their ranks i don't know whose story will resonate more profoundly um, and the thing is is that if, you know you've got somebody in a position of influence there but it's happening to people around us all the time i mean it's an unfortunate reality that Pedestrians and pedestrians and cyclists are struck and killed with a high degree of frequency in our province.
1: What about the the court system itself? I know that you cover all angles when you do these reports, Carolyn, and, I, and I'm sure that, that that you've you've talked to those folks too. Is there is there a shortfall in the system itself? I mean, because we've heard stories, much to our own frustration, I guess, about first of all long delays in in the illegal proceedings with cases like this and so many others. In some cases, they get tossed out altogether. In other cases, uh, you get down to plea bargains, and 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 there can be so many machinations about that, about whether there's a chance of a conviction, about you know this just has you know, gone on too long, etc. Is is the system itself part of the of the, the the concern here?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't make sense that if you've got a charge on the books, which is what transportation ministers would argue, that has fairly severe penalties, including six months in jail, two thousand dollars in fine. Why aren't we using that to its fullest? I mean, you provide maximum penalties for a reason, so one could argue. Apply them. Um, I, I mean, there is the counter argument that we need different sort of penalties for more serious cases where lives are lost, such as, you know, license suspensions and doing community service like we see in the States. But we've got a tough charge already, and very rarely, a 5% conviction rate, very rarely are we seeing it being applied. Why? so frequently are we seeing people plead down to a lesser charge like making that unsafe left-hand turn like running a stop sign why are we letting that happen that's a question for our attorney general and we don't have clarity on that
1: did you get the sense as you were gathering information for the for these uh, reports that that you're actually just uncovering the tip of the iceberg here that this is maybe part of a much broader issue there's obviously the careless driving itself and 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 the the lack of any sort of a push that it has behind this but but you're, you're going off into so many different areas here that people are saying, aha, uh, the court system itself, uh, you know, the fine system, uh, repeat offenders, uh, you know, whether or not this $500 fine, which seems to be prevalent for those that actually get to convictions, uh, does that act as a deterrent? Or do you have people that are repeating it again because they figure, what the hell, what are they going to do to me? Uh, this is... This is this is kind of frightening what you're going to be talking about when, when this, this actually airs tonight.
3: Yeah, well, Bill, this is the way investigative journalism works. I mean, the tip of the iceberg is usually what sets us off to a story at the outset. And as we investigate it, what, it's what lies below the surface of the water that we are most interested in uncovering. And, that's and, and you why, don't even
1: know what you're going to find.
3: No, oftentimes you don't. I mean, you usually go into a project with a working uh, theory or thesis uh, or hypothesis. Uh, you need to be ready to refute that as equally as you are to prove it because you need to be open to all options. What we found as we dug deeper into the story were continuous uh, stories of heartbreak, uh, families that lost, lost loved ones that just could not make sense of uh, of what happened in court. And, you know, court in some instances is supposed to be rehabilitative or um, healing in in some small measure for the families who have lost their loved ones. But when the, when the driver responsible does not even have to show up in court, you're in traffic court to start with. So they're processing all sorts of, odd, meaningless traffic violations and you're there because your loved one has died and the driver responsible doesn't even have to show up and you're there reading a victim impact statement in the, in the rare cases where you actually can read a victim impact statement because you can't always to tell the courts for the record what that person who died meant to you, who that person was and the driver doesn't have to be there I mean, we, the person we, had, we profiled had to read it to an empty chair I mean, so you've lost your loved one, the fine's 500 bucks. it's a left-hand turn that the driver is charged with, and they don't have to appear in court? Come on. I'm, as, just to go back to our original statement, does that make sense? And to us, it didn't.
1: Did you find that the people within the system, and, and for instance, even in the legal system, I mean, you know, defense attorneys, crowns, etc., cetera, were, were they forthcoming with information? Were they willing to talk about this?
3: Well, we interviewed somebody who used to be a crown, who then became a victim. His, his loved one died. And he couldn't make sense of it himself. He said, I know how the justice system works. I know how the courts work. And, and because I was a lawyer, I was allowed to read my victim impact statement in court. But we had to fight just to do that. Something so simple as telling the courts who our loved one was. For people that aren't as savvy in navigating the court system, they wouldn't be afforded that, quote, privilege. Um, so yes, people inside the court said to us that it was frustrating. But um, it's, you know, the, it's the, uh, transportation minister and it's the attorney general who will have to work hand in hand to make sure that the system is functioning smoothly. The transportation minister, Stephen Del Ducas admitted to us in our interview last week that no, the charge on the books, careless driving, isn't working. Otherwise we wouldn't be having this discussion. So at least from a starting point, there is that level of recognition.
1: Well, it rolls out tonight on Global National, 6.30 tonight, of course, uh, on Global and, uh, it's... Well, it's, it, you You have to watch this. This is just eye-opening stuff. And, uh, Carolyn, first of all, congratulations on the work that you guys have done on this. And I, like everyone else, I look forward to watching this tonight and uh, seeing where we're going on this. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Bill.
1: Take care. Carolyn Jarvis, of course, Chief Investigative Correspondent with Global National. 6.30 tonight, of course, with Donna Friesen on Global National. You can see part one of this investigative series. What happens to those charged with careless driving? And the short answer is you're not going to like the short answer.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.